you're not going to be able to quiet quit because you're about to get loud fired. Tell it like it is, right, Margaret? Where's that passion coming from? Well, let's find out on this week's episode of Don't Say Content, created in partnership with Share Your Genius. In a sea of a million marketing shows, we strive to be original, but hey, who knows? I'm Katie, your producer, and these are our hosts, Devin Bramhall. When you look at what's on LinkedIn, it's just a bunch of people whining. And Margaret Kelsey. I don't know. Just don't do your playbooks anymore. In this episode, we're exploring the ongoing, never-ending headlines of quiet quitting and other HR buzzwords, but make it actually useful career advice. What Margaret and Devin's first paychecks out of college looked like, and what we look for and screen for in marketing talent. Let's dive in with some headlines. We've got lots of chatter about quiet quitting, right? I have a headline. Fortune has dubbed this the disengagement crisis. Is this like a leadership to blame thing? Does the workforce need a mindset shift? I think the quick hot take is that you're not going to be able to quiet quit because you're about to get loud fired. (laughs) That shit's coming. Don't quiet quit right now. Like, now's not the time. I love that. I agree wholeheartedly. I feel that in this instance, I'm a journalism major. I very much value news. I don't necessarily think fortune is news, but that's another conversation. Uh, I think that the constant writing about things like burnout, great resignation, quiet quitting, rage applying, all that stuff, it sells ads and gets traffic. But I think it's giving something fodder that probably could have cycled itself out a lot faster. But because people keep writing about it, it's giving the workforce something to latch onto uh, mm-hmm. or a certain segment of the workforce something to latch onto. And so it's kind of perpetuating its own problem. And I think it's wimpy. I think if you're quiet quitting, you're a wimp. Because if you're not enjoying your job, then one, yeah, figure out why. Yeah, It's easy to blame your job. Are you bored with the type of work? Do you want to explain? Like, be brave. Life is too short. Yeah. Which isn't to say don't have workplace boundaries. But I do also think that like what I have seen is that burnout is not, and I can't claim this as my own, but burnout is not about hours worked. It's about emotional ROI. And if you don't have emotional ROI with your job, no matter what hours you're working, no matter what boundaries you have put in place, you're going to feel burnt out and you're not going to like your life. But if you have emotional ROI, It's not going to matter if you're going to answer an email after hours or answer a Slack message because you feel supported and like you're working on something that is aligned to your own higher mission or whatever it is. And so for me, it's like like work-life boundaries isn't even the conversation. It's not quiet quitting. It's not workplace boundaries. It's like, do you have the emotional ROI and the work that you're doing to just feel good at the end of the day? Also, it's really selfish. It's like, oh, you're like, oh, I'm not. And so it's like, you're going to impact your team if you're quiet quitting. So it's not just like, you like think you're sticking it to the man. I'm like, A, what man or woman? You know what I mean? But B, like, you're screwing over your colleagues. Like, they feel that lack of energy and it impacts them negatively. So you're a selfish loser. That's a really good point about the team. I haven't heard that take. Yeah. It's so, it's such, I'm like, If you're unhappy, do something about it. Like, there's so many ways to make money now outside of a company. Like, there are so ways you can monetize yourself. I am so frustrated by that mindset because I just think that it's a way of removing any responsibility from yourself and you're making other people miserable in the process. And that's not helpful. 
this next headline, this could go one of two ways. You're either going to hate this or we should just skip it. Um, loud quitting is the new the new one on the scene. Loud right? quitting. Loud Wait, quitting, what's loud AKA, quitting now? Yes, throwing a fit in a specific way to try to negotiate like a salary raise or like, you know, like an alignment in your job description, that kind oh, of thing. Oh, do I have stories of that? Wow. I have some I mean, really unbelievably psychotic stories of people leaving in very crazy ways. But wait, are they actually quitting or are they just using it as a bargaining chip? It's a bargaining no, chip. No, it's just a bargaining chip. It's oh. closer. I mean, it's it's not as wimpy, right, as quite quitting. It's like voicing things, but also yeah. it's manipulative. So I would I have never I have I've heard that this is advice to do. I have never in my life told a company that I was leaving to try to use it as a bargaining chip. But if you are going down the path with enough conversations that you are willing to entertain an offer to that degree where you have salary expectations, a job offer in hand, go to that other company. Like there was something there that like that brought you there. And I don't think that companies and managers feel great about about that manipulation tactic. Maybe that works like 20 years ago. You know, it feels like almost like one of those things that I've like heard from like our parents generation being like, well, what you need to do is show them that you have a competing offer and then they'll increase your salary. Devin, I've never been fired, but every time I've quit, everyone has been like, see you later. Like nobody has ever been like, no, please stay. I've never gotten a counter offer. Uh, I don't know if that's because I pitch it as like I am leaving and there's nothing you can do. Or if it's like they're by the time I'm leaving, they're probably happy to see me go. I would say that I love loud quitting from the standpoint of gossip it's great i love seeing those stories i'm like this is hilarious people are absolutely bonkers and they take dumb things way too seriously if someone quits loudly to me that means like they quit in a ball of flames which i have seen before including people who worked for me and i was like this is batshit crazy and it really negatively impacted the team too. So it's like kind of unfortunate. But like from the outside looking in, I'm like, it's a great story later. I'm like, this is hilarious. Love to see it in the headlines. But like it's, you know, ultimately like immature, ridiculous. The thing about using another job to get a raise, I've never done it. Um, one time I came close was my first tech job when I was working on customer support and I realized I wanted to move into content marketing and there wasn't a role available at my company and I went to the then CEO and I had gotten myself a job as a backup, but I didn't say it. Mm-hmm. It was manufactured confidence that if I got back to myself into a corner and got myself fired somehow from telling him I wanted to do something different than what I was hired to do, that I would be less, you know, it wouldn't matter as much. So I was more. It's for uh, you, uh, not for the manipulation of it. Yep. And yeah. so then he gave me great advice and and I was able to move into the job I wanted to do at the company. But I was able to have the conversation because I went about getting that other job. I had an offer on the table. And guess what? The offer I was given by the other company was more money. And mm-hmm. I didn't take it because it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. I stayed and made less money because I liked the company and it was what I wanted to do. And they had a female CEO coming in, which is what my then CEO gave me a heads up on. So like he really helped. Like it was really it was a good situation. I do think, though, at the time, Margaret, you and I were coming up, I feel like it was more useful then because when I was coming up, it was harder to get a promotion. It was harder to get a raise, even if you were doing a good job. And so I actually like I again, I never deployed it. I never had to. It was really hard when we were coming up 
especially at tech companies. Like it wasn't easy. And so like, yeah, we I were didn't all get, underpaid. I didn't get a promotion or I got a cost of living change. That was the only comp change that I got. That was the whole four years that I was there. But I was learning enough that like, I mean, it, at the end, it bothered me. And that's why I left because I was like, oh, yeah. I have a different market value somewhere else four years and I was I was growing and felt like I was getting better at my job I had you know I worked on the blog and then I had a different non-webinar webinar series um so I felt like I was growing enough that it was interesting at the time until the end where it wasn't but I actually had a great Jess Maher who is a Boston marketer yeah. and she yeah. had already left when I was about to leave and I had lunch with her and I was so frustrated I was trying to figure out what I could do and she point blank was just like, your market worth is higher elsewhere. Mm-hmm. But the skills that you have learned can be way more valuable to a different startup that can't find somebody like that. And she just put it in such like plain, unemotional business context to me that at first I was like a little bit like, oh, that's shitty that that's the way the world works. But it was so important in my career to just be like, it's all a business decision, right? You won't have a perfect opportunity. You won't have a perfect experience. I agree with you. Because like when you look at what's on LinkedIn, it's just a bunch of people whining. They're whining about everything. Oh, it's hard to get a job. Like, oh, I'm burnt out. Can I turn that into a soundbite? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Something to use again and again. I'm like, can you please? Maybe the reason you're having a hard time finding a job is because you're not very good at what you do. And they're finding other people who are more talented. But it's like, I like think about it. Like we used to have to try really hard to stand out because there were so many good people around us, especially in Boston because Boston was a really small ecosystem. And it was like early in the startup world there. So like you had to be really good if you were going to get hired. Yeah, And it was like, so now I'm like, what if you, if you thought about it, like maybe I need to up my game a little, like stop complaining because PS employers do not like that. Seeing all these people like bitching and moaning about how hard they're like, I'm like, good luck. Like, that's just going to be hard for you. Show me something cool that you did. Yeah. My best hack for that is join a company, do cool shit, and then quickly realize because of the trajectory of the company that you actually couldn't get hired at the company anymore if you tried to apply. Like that was me at Envision where I looked around and I was like, the people I was hiring was like way better than who I was, you know, that combination can be really powerful. I remember one point I was where I was the director of content and there was a man reporting to me who made like almost double my salary (gasps) and was not performing, like not even just doing the day to day of his job. Oh, I don't know what that's not a market or business decision. I don't know what decision that is. But like, like looking back in my career, all those points where I was like, oh, God, like it was ugly back then. Like people like things are so much better now. I'm like, you have no idea. Okay, hey again. Popping in because stories do a better job than anecdotes. So here's an anonymous submission from a listener sharing their experience in the world of work. Hey, Devin and Margaret. I have an executive bashing story for you. So I'm pregnant. I had disclosed to my boss, and around the six-month mark, I had scheduled a meeting with our HR lead to review benefits. 
Um, we had just been acquired by another agency, and for 2023, everything was changing. So I wanted to make sure going into my third trimester, we are on the same page. Um, and so I hop on the Zoom, and all of a sudden, our founder's there. Unexpected, like not planned. And now, this agency that I work for is female-founded, all-female employees. I was like, oh, cool. This must be how things are done at agencies like this. How refreshing. And so I start talking to her about my plan, and she stops me to inform me that instead I am being paid off. So to say I was blindsided was an understatement and just kind of goes to show it doesn't really matter it, how high you climb or who's running the agency. There's terrible layoff stories, and candidly, this is just another one of them. So onward and upwards, and I'll see you on the pod. Yep, that happened. Let's get back to what's happening with Devon and Margaret. They're diving into the buzz around marketing budgets in 2023. This one, I'm just going to read you guys a headline. Yep. Tell me what you think. Hiring demand for marketers could start to slow in 2023. Good. Factor cap. Thank God. <laughs> factor cap. I'm like, well, I think we're a little too old to factor cap. I don't know, Devin, do you feel comfortable factor capping? Like, I feel like cap to what me is, is like such capping? a... I'm so sorry. I couldn't help it. <laughs> <laughs> you keep it Wait, as what's... young. Fact is true. Cap is lie. So like the kids these days will say cap or no cap. No cap means it's true. They probably don't even say this anymore because like I'm not cool. (laughs) Anyways, hiring demand for marketers could start slow in 2023. Yes. It's not. Here's the thing. It's taken out of context. This is the whole thing. Why all these. Oh, my God. It drives me crazy. Like all these people are freaking out. And like, listen, first of all, tech. Small industry, okay? This doesn't represent the entire freaking economy. And there's still a ton of jobs. There's more jobs than there are people. So, like, calm down. The reason marketing hiring is slow is because it was so hot end of, in end of 2020 and throughout 2021. Yeah. And so, like, these companies hired too many marketers. And it turns out that, I don't know, when you b- create a team full of, like, average people and even the management isn't good enough to manage these average like. Oh, I, I guess nothing. There's no ROI on that. And I think it's going to make the workforce better because I think the smart people who get fired will have a reckoning moment and they'll be like, oh, maybe I'll go improve my skill here or do this there or like, you know what I mean? Um, to me, it feels like a cyclical correction and not like something tragic. No. You can go find a better fit like you were talking about with the quiet quitting, yeah. right? Like go find somewhere where you actually yeah. get the emotional ROI you want. Yeah. yeah. Well, this kind of leads into more of this kind of talk, honestly, like budgets being slashed, marketing departments being squished, CMOs feeling the pressure to speak more of a financial language with CFOs. Okay. The CMO being closer to the CFO is actually really important and good. It should be that way. The CMO is fundamentally a business role. It is not a creative role. They are the one, like the closer they are to the CFO, CFOs have more influence now than they ever have before, which means that if the CMO is close to the CFO, that is a good strategic relationship that will help the CMO's team in terms of getting budget and all of that. So I actually think that's really good. The other thing about um, budget slash anytime there's a contraction in a creative industry, I see it as a positive thing because one thing creatives are really good at are constraints. You give a creative a constraint and guess what? It makes them, it ups their creativity by 10x. If you were to give me a million dollars right now to like go make something, 
I would sit on the floor and watch TV for hours. I'd be like, I don't know what the fuck to do. I would take it personally. <laughs> I love how that like sounded like it was going to go into something more, but you were like, that. No, full I'll stop. take the million to create yeah. something. Like you're going to yeah. give me that a million dollars to create something. Yeah. You creatives need constraints. Yeah. We're going to complain about it the whole time. I need you to know that. Like we are going to complain. If you don't give me exactly what I want, I'm going to be annoyed at you. But the second I walk away from that conversation, I'm going to go back and I'm going to sit around. I'm going to think about it. And I'm going to come up with a way better idea than I would have if you gave me exactly what I wanted. In terms it's of also – I feel like it's similar to like if you're buying a house or you're renting an apartment. Once you know what your budget is, you always want the thing that's just like a little bit more than what your budget is. And I yeah. feel like being a creative, it's the same thing. It's like you get your budget, you get your constraints, and you're like, but if I could just have a little more – just a little yes. more. Then I could have that second bathroom. I could have that powder room. That would be really nice. So guests don't have to use my bathroom. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Then we're going to see a rise in creativity and productivity that, that is kicked off by a lot of this contraction in like budgets and people being fired, like all of that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to do some positive things for individuals too. And I think the important thing here is that like um for execs and for the management layers that have to do this like this is going to be good you will be more creative you will be leaner you will be more you'll have more experiments you'll come out of it better and i think that on the other end for people that are going to experience this is also a good thing right if you ask a lot of managers right now like push comes to shove who they would let go of they know exactly who they are they're just hanging on to them because like they've got bigger fish to fry and they're like okay this person kind of sucks but like i don't i can't really deal with it right now or like you know there's other kinds of so it's like i guarantee they know i exactly know that that person they... quiet quit but yeah i don't or have time just... to deal with it because i yeah. need them to turn their key a half turn every two days or whatever it yeah. is and you want to know what's interesting too from like a like a business standpoint is like there are some really good people who have been fired so like they were part of a layoff where it was purely budget, right? Like they had to let go of some good people too. And like the first round, like the second round is always where the good people are a lot of times if they're big enough company that there's a second round. Um, that's a really good opportunity for these companies that are able to hire because, you know, um, there's a, there's going to be some really good talent on the market too. And they're going to stand way out because they're going to be the people posting about what they accomplished at their last job. They're going to be normal about being let go. Um, and it's like people normal. are going to – And they're like I can think of a few people right now who I'm like, these are really talented people. And guess what? These are the kinds of people whose managers, when they had to lay them off, like some of them emailed me and I was like, oh. And when people came to me saying, do you know anyone who does this? I'm like, actually, I do. I've never met them, but they were highly recommended by somebody I really respect and trust. Yep. You know what I mean? And so like there's a positive loop too where if you just like – don't be an asshole. Like you're going to, you know, you're going to get swooped up right now. So I just want to say that it is hilarious to me the number of people who are crying on LinkedIn that they have to like interview for a job. Like so many people are like, oh my God, the job market and I got late and like, feet like it's they're like acting like there's war in the job market in marketing and i'm like i need you to know that that's just like 
how it used it was. to be. I know. I know. I was happy, so happy to get the job I did right out of college because it was right after the recession and it was so, so difficult. And I think without that, think about the last year. Think about how many people switched jobs and got like 30% pay bumps in the last year. Think about how many people didn't even interview for those jobs and they were just like poached and it was like handed to them. Yes. Like I think it's it's a really quick cycle change right now. And I think that's where you're seeing people just like be totally floored, especially if they didn't grow up back in the day like us where they had uh, to deal with stingier job markets. Yeah, or like normal pay where like we're actually <laughs> under being underpaid. Where Devin, what was I your think... first how much did you make first your first job out of college? I was I made thirty one thousand dollars thirty four thirty four thousand dollars. And then I was working directly for the COO of a marketing consultancy, literally like getting the money in from all these big contracts that we were doing. And I think I was psyched because I got paid like I got a pay bump to like 38 or something like you know what I mean life changing yeah I mean it was it was what about you uh similarly I think it was it was a little over 30 and then I worked I think I it was like got up to 35 I worked at a PR agency and I was driving I was commuting an hour each way from Fort Lauderdale to Miami uh sometimes more than an hour and working crazy hours and it was like hospitality PR so it was like at night, we would go to like openings of restaurants and bars and then have to be in the next morning to like pitch stuff out. And I was making there not more than 35K. Yeah. When I was in Boston, I remember A, like I was a marketing manager. I had two direct reports that I hired and I think I was making like $71,000 yeah. a year. Oh, that was like, that's the probably the biggest, like the biggest lifestyle jump of your life, I feel like yep. is like the 35 to 70K. Yeah. Bum. I mean, that didn't happen linearly. Like this no, was. No, no. Yeah. But like, Well, yes. mine did. And I went from 35K to 70K. That was like, I pay- I started paying off my student loans. I was yes. able to like put gas in my car. <laughs> that was like. What an insane concept. I know. I went I know. ahead and left the job. So like I moved to a startup after that agency and got like a decent pay bump. I think I was making up like 50 or something. Yeah. To me, Times like, were wow. lean. We were walking to school uphill both ways in the snow. We were. <laughs> we were. It was so hard. It was so hard. <laughs> but I think to the importance of that, like the reason why it's top of mind for us and the why we as old ladies talk about it all the time is because of the quality of the workforce is not up to par. And so you have all these people who don't know how to lead, don't know how to manage, don't know how to prioritize, don't know have don't have vision or strategy. Like they think they have strategy, but really all they're doing is like, here's an editorial calendar. So when I was at Shareaholic, it was my very first content marketing manager role. And the head of product, uh, David Zaker, w- had taken over the marketing department and awesome guy, loved him, loved working for him and with him. He asked me to put together a content strategy and I did, but every time I presented it to him, he was like, yeah, but what's the strategy? Like, what's the, and I was like, David, like it's right here. Like, what is your problem, man? Like I am showing you. And he's Our like, strategy is post blog posts. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, but here are the keywords. Here's the things we're going to, like, here are all the things we're going to do. Here yeah. are the, it was a list of activities 
that were unified um, under not even an objective. I don't think I had, like, I was just like, these are all the things we're going to do and surely they will do something. And he, I didn't understand that a strategy isn't a list of activities. A strategy is a concept or hypothesis for how you're going to achieve something. And the activities support that. And I didn't know. The number of conversations I'm in where people don't even, aren't even talking about objectives. They're like, well, we can use this piece of content. We can do that. And I'm like, should Why? you even be putting content at this point in the journey? Do you know the journey? What is the yeah. objective? And then like the dead silence when I ask that. I'm like, what is the objective of this activity? What does success look like here? Yeah. How would you hire a marketer right now? They all have the same problems. They're yeah. really strong practitioners who have no idea how to, sorry, like manage and lead their way through even just getting something done. Like getting something done at a big or small company takes a lot of like yeah. political, you know, you have to be able to like have conversations and work through things and not be too deferential. Like you've got to be able to like, you Get know, and I just don't see a lot of that. I see a lot of people who wait to talk in meetings and like, I'm just like, look, I, I get it. We can have an inclusionary conversation all day long about extrovert, like, extrovert, introvert. I'm like, but look, if you're going to work on a team at a company, you like, you need to show up yeah. and in collaborative environments with other people. Th that is how things get done. And it's like, you know, and so it's like, I think it's just, you know, when I look at people who I want to hire, my thing now is I'm actually, I don't care if you're a subject matter expert. The thing that people are lacking is not an understanding of the content or the subject matter. They don't know how, they just don't know how to run a program. Mm. They don't know how to organize. They don't know how to get people on board. They don't know how to like, they don't know how to run things. And I'm like, that's all marketing is, is running stuff. Yeah. And so I'm, I am evaluating more for their ability to analyze I'm looking at on their resume, are they speaking about performance or are they just talking about a bunch of stuff they did? Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I'm the queen of like, let's just do things and see what happens. Like, I love that kind of like. But the things you put on your resume are the things that worked. <laughs> exactly. And I need to see that you know how to do things that work and you know how to think. The performance isn't like, oh, I want to tie every marketing activity back to a performance goal. It's like, do you even know how to think about the impact of your work and talk about it? Do you know how to set objectives? Do you know how to, like, can you follow through on things? So, like, I think that, like, I need to see, like, pretty much even in an IC level that you have marketing skills at all. Yeah. Because a lot of people on their resumes, when you dig down and talk to them, you're like, oh, this campaign that you ran. And they're like, well, I didn't really run it. Like, my manager told me exactly like, what to do and where to do it. Meeting. And I just did it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, that's not running a campaign. That's you like executing on yeah. some stuff. Right. So I think it's like, I need to see that they truly own the project. I need to see that they understand why they did the project, how to analyze it. Huge. If you can actually tell me, like analyze what you would do, like talk about what you would do differently and that you know how to work cross-functionally or even intra team. Yeah. And do you have like big ideas yeah let's pause for a second just so you know what's about to go down next up is empty thoughts Devin and margaret's moment for trying to make sense of mindless banter that many alleged experts post on social media platforms you already know what i'm talking about i love a good mindless thought
I know. I it's they're my fave. So I actually found one from a surprising source that was I just it was a bunch of nothing. I think it meant to be something. So it basically says millions of people read my blog every year and I have three writing tips that have worked for me. And so ostensibly, because you are leading with millions of people read my blog every year, you're trying to say that these tips are correlated with the millions of people. Just my interpretation. Correlated with success. Yes. So if we follow this, Devin, are we going to be successful bloggers? Just you. I would be curious to hear your your thoughts. Give me the tips. So tip number one, stop using commas. Periods are the new commas. There's a little more, but I don't think it needs any more empty thoughts in that one. So second tip, use insanely specific copy. Specific copy. Okay. Yep. I'm like trying to think Um, of what insanely specific copy even is. It's just basically don't be vague. Move away from the vague and towards the specific. Which P.S. is not a specific sentence (laughs) because... Okay, this is where my brain was being wrapped in a pretzel is insanely specific is not actually specific and saying move away from vague and towards specific is a very vague statement (laughs) how much do i move like why am i why are you telling me to be insanely specific and then telling me it can be like like this flowing thing it's important for me to remind you of number two which is write insanely specific copy but the third piece of advice is write for skimmers people don't read online they skim (sighs) wow Devin, 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 Devin. You can get millions of visits to your site with no commas being specific, but also being skimmable, which yeah. PS like there is some advice in there that makes sense if you were like, to you know, but it's like that is clearly like that isn't the whole thing. Maybe that person should have like had a minute before they wrote that to be a little more specific about what that means and how that whole set of advice ties together into something that actually makes sense. Okay. Anyway, here we are. The second empty thought that I saw today actually involved me. And I saw that I was tagged on LinkedIn for some reason. And I, I always cringe at first. I'm like, oh, no, what have I done this time? What have I said? Yeah. What so did you this, say? This person put me into one of those like dramatic looking visual quotes. I've never met oh, this person I love before. These. And... It, uh, yeah, never met them. They started the post by qu- quoting Ralph Waldo Emerson. The only person you are destined Double to quotes. become is the person you decided to be. Also, they misused the quote. They used a single quote and not the double. It's fine. Then they say, you are in control of your destiny. Leap into leadership today. Now, basically, the first sentence is just a repeat of Ralph Waldo and Emerson. The second one is like, it doesn't mean anything. But the visual quote on the post is me for some reason And the quote is, I do, like, this is something I said, but, like, I don't remember where I said it. No one is going to make you a leader. Take the reins, create your own opportunity, and build the career that you deserve. It was a conversation about, like, That's beautiful. That's actually a beautiful quote, Devin. Fine. But, like, why, why this entire post? Yeah. Why? It's basically someone, like, using my words. Is really impressive. Because they have nothing to say. The, The only organic thing this person had to say was, Leap into leadership today. The hashtags are leadership, inspire, destiny, and then they tag me in it. Okay, Devin, what I think is hysterical about these is I have seen, first of all, I think kudos to you for getting into one of these because I've only seen the quotes from like famous people being used in this format where somebody is like quoting or has like a putting into a dramatic image of some famous person 
being quoted. And the only thing that comes to my mind when I see these is that uh, the office reference of Michael Scott and his Wayne Gretzky quote. And it's like, you miss 100 percent of chances that you don't take Wayne Gretzky, Michael Scott. And that's like the only thing I can see whenever I see one of these quote posts on LinkedIn is just like that meme. And to me, I think it really means that you made it. So kudos I, for making it. You famous, I'm not gonna famous lady. <laughs> I'm not going to reshare. I'm not going to like. I'm not going to comment. I'm sorry. I can't. I even hate the quote visual. They put their brand on it. This is the other thing. They put, they put their, your, their brand on your quote. Oh. And I'm like. Well, sneaky. Yeah. That's like a form of like IP stealing. And back to our regularly scheduled programming. Here are some fully, maybe partially, formed thoughts. I'm always curious about your experience in Envision because I, in such a legendary brand for me, it was especially when I was coming up as a marketer. Like, what were the folks like, the other marketing folks like when you were there? And like, how were, how did you feel? Like, were you was it challenging? Like, how was it for you coming up there? Like, was it challenging? I don't know. Yeah, no, tell it was me all the about best. It. My life goal is to somehow recreate the team that we had at Envision in like 20, let's call it 2014 to 2016. I think this was so core to it. We didn't know what we were doing. All we cared about was being in service of designers. We didn't know what we were doing in terms of like marketing. It was a lot of younger folks. PLG wasn't really defined as PLG. Like if you would have asked me at the time, I would have said we're like B to C to B right? Like that's what we were using in terms of like trying to describe the fact that like I'm selling to the end user and not to like some big procurement person. Um, But it's still a business application. So you're talking about their career and and jobs and things like that. And um, what I loved the most about it is because we were focused on design as an audience, it allowed us to be creative in our marketing because our target audience valued creativity valued aesthetics, valued user experience. And so all of those things as I was coming up as a marketer were totally ingrained with my understanding of marketing is it's a fantastic user experience. It's aesthetically beautiful, powerful. It's emotionally resonant. It's creative. Because my first target audience was designers. But what I'm realizing now throughout the rest of my career is that's just human beings. They like emotionally resonant marketing. They like beautiful things they like things they like to have a fantastic user experience like that's all just like good shit now oh yeah give me a spicy take yeah so look i I give me an apple crunch and a spicy take there you go (laughs) where's my carrots so i'm going to disagree with you a little bit there and it is because of two recent client experiences i have had or am having one of which targets a customer a product that targets CFOs and another that's a product for software developers. And what I learned from creating go-to-market material for CFOs is that actually like a, a creative environment experience and beauty that isn't a priority for them. And similarly with developers, they are more literal. They want like they're just they just want the answer to something. They want you to talk about the thing you said you're gonna talk about. And it changed my idea about what creativity is and means. And so the user experience piece of what you said resonated the most with me because for a CFO, they don't necessarily want anything that I deem to be creatively innovative in any way or exciting. No, but they do need a spreadsheet. (laughs) 
Give it to me in bullet points. Like, come on. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But that's exactly. beautiful to them. The thing about creativity that I think is important and the important distinction is that creativity isn't just design. It isn't just creative the way you write. It is how you approach a problem. It's trying to figure out a way to engage an audience that doesn't exhibit behaviors that you as a marketer are used to building around. And so I think that, you know, at Envision, you were in that beautiful sweet spot that I think a lot of us would love to be in where you got to work in a space where that that was design, that was marketing. And so those two things were naturally tied together. But there are other ways to be creative. Like I think marketing to developers is really fun because it forces me into a different creative mindset. And I have to think about how to reach them differently. And it enhances my marketing skill set. I think it gets me to oh, think yeah, they're deeper. Not gonna, they're not going to let you hit them with a with a email gate on a no. piece of content. Like, good well, try. It depends. Well, it always depends. Yeah, no, yeah you're right. Life, it I depends. I think, I think categorically across the board, marketing is boring right now. You know, the number, I'm like, just stop. The, the, the playbook is one of our dirty words because i'm like oh fucking down with the can playbook. you that's can you my st- number one my not that you asked but i'm gonna tell you anyways i want to know yeah my the number one thing that i screen for right now is have you thought about why something works and not just that it worked and the yeah. thing that i think is we're missing so much in marketing as a function is the fact that like the reason behind usually why marketing works is pretty like consistent, right? There's like yeah. some basic laws of human psychology of why these things work. The application can vary so much. But if you only think of like, oh, I do, I always pick on webinars, but like, it, let's pick on webinars. Like, oh, I do webinars because webinars exist and I know how to do a great webinar. It's like, do you understand why it works in that function? And also like the other things that you could test that could work for the why. And not just like that you have a playbook and you know how to operate the playbook, but like, do you know the reason why? Because I don't care about channel, right? Like, I don't care if you're a channel expert. Like maybe you have some like hacky things that you can do. But to me, it's like a good marketer should be able to do it in any channel, right? Because what you're doing is you're just like testing and iterating and understanding the psychology and the why behind it. You have me at hello. I completely agree. Like, But that's like the mental process that you need. Otherwise, like just, I don't know, just don't do your playbooks anymore. Tell me a little bit about what you're hearing in terms of um, workforce and what's happening with marketing layoffs and like, what are you hearing from the people you talk to? Yeah. So I think we've heard a lot about sort of the manager level and below, but I was also curious about what leadership is experiencing. And my old boss, Sunit Bhatt from Help Scout, like he's he's done the role that I never wanted to do, which was CMO. And he always had – like he was always sort of critical of that role in a very productive way. I think he saw it for what it is or sees it for what it is and has a really interesting take on it. I had to like write it down so I remember he said – I think this will resonate for a lot of folks. But he said the problem with C- the CMO – role is that it's usually poorly defined, hired too late, 
the metrics aren't well-defined and the authority isn't there. And I think that this is particularly in startups because the CMO experience enterprise level is very different in his perspective, which I have never been a CMO anywhere. I actively decided I would never do that role. I don't think it sounds fun to me at all. And the thing that he pointed out, which most people know because they read the news, but this CMO has one of the lowest tenures in the C-suite. Oh, yeah. It's like abysmal right now, right? Is it less than three years? I think I think so. I don't I don't know, but it's it's short. And I think that's like there's a reason for that. I don't think they're properly empowered. His belief, and I completely agree with this, is that that role needs to be closely aligned with the CFO because, you know, that unlocks the budget. It keeps like for sort of like C-suite alignment around marketing philosophy and share budget and all of that stuff helps you tie it back to sort of the core. But he had an interesting, you know, typical criticisms. You basically have to do all the things like drive leads, product adoption, employee engagement, sort of like amorphous, all the things role. That's not great. But he had some interesting feedback based on customer convos conversations that he's had with the company that he works with. And he said that having a level, like needing to have a level of accuracy and precision on metrics on the marketing side, which again is why like having a strong, like having a CFO partner, having a strong like technical person or ops person whose time is dedicated to setting things, setting up your marketing ops is really important. His take is that there'll be more, you'll be seeing more alignment between CMO and CFO and that you will be the best CMO you can be if you're aligned with the CFO mm. and a CFO that can measure and see what's working. That take for me is not something I've heard a lot. No, I and always I, hear like CMO, CEO alignment, not really CFO alignment. Yeah. And this is not my words. This is Sunit's. But like the CFO role is becoming more important. Mm. And so I think that like it's a very influential role to the to begin with just because you're, you know, you're in charge of the money. And to a certain degree, I think you're more influential over the money because you're made the ones making the recommendation to the CEO. So it's like, I, do, I actually think it makes a lot of sense, just something I hadn't heard a lot. And that's why I thought it was interesting. I was like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like the reasons why I never wanted to do it is because exactly what he described, it's a garbage role that usually you get a lot of shit. You don't have as much authority as other people in the C-suite. Your team then suffers as a result and... It's not allowed to be a strategic as strategic a role as it needs to be yep. in most companies. But I don't know. I'm kind of wondering if that role like changes into something else. I agree that it needs to change. I feel like I'm not even creative enough to understand what it needs to change into. Me Do you think it needs to like bifurcate into two roles? Does it need to like be something bigger? The problem with any marketing role is that everyone in the company thinks they know how to do it. Yeah. And 99.9% of them don't. And I don't think that's ever going to change. And so I think the title has to be different to change people's mindsets. And it has to be something more like business oriented because to, the creativity of marketing doesn't come into play until lower levels. Yeah. And so the CMO is really just setting vision. They're really just getting budget, right? That's their most important role, right? But it's down and, you know, communicating vision, translating that, et cetera. And then the people more on the ground are the ones that come up with the concepts and propose, you know what I mean? 
Yeah, to me, I feel like the because marketing can be so many things at so many different organizations and we get stuck in almost like thinking of the different tactics. I also think that marketers have done ourselves a disservice because we think everything needs a name and to be marketed. And so we've made things like field marketing and ABM and social media marketing and influencer marketing and like all of these other things. And how I advise is that marketing is fundamentally just two things. The first thing is to stay top of mind with your target audience. So like hijack frequency and recency bias and just like saturate channels that you know your target audience is in. It's not even conversion yet. It's literally like success is saturation of a channel with the correct message. And then the second part is like identifying the signals that somebody is ready to convert. And can you convert them as quickly and efficiently as possible? And so when I thought when my brain immediately went to like bifurcation, it's like because I think that like we we put those things together and we budget them together and we goal them together. But like the first part is important just because you're staying top of mind and like yeah. priming. And I, I feel agree. like especially as a CMO moves closer to the CFO and builds that relationship, my fear there, to be honest, is that a CFO is going to ask for only the ROI producing activities, not realizing that up funnel, if you don't invest in brand, let's call it, that what you're doing is you're like squeezing an ever drying rag, right? Mm -hmm. Saturation is the thing that actually makes it so demand gen or conversion can actually happen. And so I understand, especially in this macro environment where things are swinging so quickly from like so much capital in startups to like a drought of capital in startups and that marketing needs to be leaner and more efficient than ever. I do worry that like we're going to miss the whole part of marketing that sets up the conversion part of marketing. Yeah, I am a plus one on all of that. Not that you need my plus one, but I oh, I'm, that it. resonates with me. I'll take I'm it like, every time. I, yeah, I'm like that's that's great. Like I I'm like I see that. The only thing that does that I feel is maybe missing is what you described in the beginning feels more transactional than I think it should be in my, like personally. So it's like, I think community is actually a really important part of that and relationship building. And I think like there's one company that I'm working with. It's a very large corporation and it makes me very happy as a marketer because I think it's correct, which is they have a content team, a demand gen team and a community team. And all mm -hmm. of it falls under the director of marketing. And I'm like, that is correct. And I actually think that like content and community, like to me, community should be part of everything, but this is a good first step. I think the community, like community management as a role is coming back and it absolutely should. Are you teasing us for our next episode? Maybe. And we've got one more thing for you before you go. Here's some good vibes brought to you by Soulful Wealth. Hi, I'm Jen Hirsch, futurist astrologer at Soulful Wealth. With the huge amount of firing we've seen of marketing teams, I see this as symptomatic of the monoculture infection that we've reached. For about 25 years, tech has grown, and we're now plateauing where so many different platforms, so many different techniques, so many different tools are all identical. We're seeing the stagnation and kind of the dis-ease that tech is responding in some ways to acts a huge number of departments. That's not a bad thing. Being independent, being nimble, and being more creative as people become interested in freelancers, interested in new startups, creating startups of their own, 
and really following another big 2023 trends of feeding the machine, which is allying themselves with more tools that helps make their individual efforts go much further and scale. I actually view this as a more creative outpouring, although in response to things that are difficult and perhaps overall with the market um, a bit callous as people lose high paying jobs and have to deal with the churn that comes both from the teams being lost as well as uh, looking for new opportunities. All right, let's wrap this episode up. Here's what I jotted down as your audio guide. You can either grab my notes in the show notes, otherwise here they are. First of all, execs, you're doing the right thing. Creative marketers will thrive with the newfound constraints. Good business decisions are good business decisions. And marketers, all of this is going to be good for you too. Make sure you're at a company with high emotional ROI, throw out your playbooks, and start making really good stuff for the real human beings that are your audience. Remember why you got into marketing in the first place. You get to influence behavior at scale, and that's what's really powerful. And that is where our episode ends. I need to sign off. Legit. Margaret has a great voice for podcasting, but she also has a great face for TV. Like, she's the total package. That is the nicest thing anyone has ever said. I thought you were going to (laughs) also say that I had a face for podcasting. No. (laughs) No.